and welcome to another episode of That 60s Recording Podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. Today I have a very special guest for you and uh, I wasn't expecting uh, this episode to go out for a little while but I've squeezed it in as a as a one-off and we were a bit limited on time so it's a it is literally just a one-off episode not a usual two-parter. And uh, today's episode is with Colin Blunstone, who was the lead singer of The Zombies. And uh, we talk about his upcoming uh, re-release of One Year, which was his debut solo album released in 71. Um, and we also talk about Odyssey and Oracle and recording She's Not There. And uh, as I say, it's just a, a one-off episode that has been... Uh, sort of inputted into the regular scheduling because I was very keen to get this out there and he has the re-release coming out in November um, so we were quite keen to get this out uh, to help publicise the re-release because it sounds absolutely incredible. I've been sent an advanced copy of it and it's amazing. Um, it's such a beautiful album. If you've not listened to One Year, go and listen to it now. It's unbelievable. Uh, yeah, it, it's just so emotive and soulful and you'll hear us talking about it a lot. So anyway, we'll dive straight in. Here we go. Colin Blunstone of The Zombies. <laughs> Thanks for sp uh, taking the time to speak with me. I appreciate it. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Um, that's a, an extremely uh, good Zoom background. <laughs> I must say, are you at home? I'm at home, Yes. <laughs> Does it look like there's a lot going on? No, it just looks like a, an enormous collection of books and music, like guitars and things. And uh, yeah, it's, it's um, you know, if you were interviewed on TV, that would be a fantastic background to have. <laughs> Excellent. Well, that's where I, this is where I do most of most of my Zoom things from. Uh, it's where it's where I listen to music, and it's where I play from. You see, from the guitars. Yeah, I think yeah. there's a third. There's a third one behind me. Oh yeah, so, very nice little parlor guitar. Yes, yeah. Actually, it needs a bit of attention. That one, it's uh, it's not very well, but uh, the other two are working. Well. Oh, lovely! How was um, how was Abbey Road? It was great. I mean, it was it it was um, it was really good. I found it quite emotional going back there for imagine. many reasons. One is that, of course, we recorded a lot there when we were younger. Firstly, with the Zombies, and I did my first three solo albums there. And um, I've also recorded there are many albums with Alan Parsons. So there's lots of memories. And then if you couple that with the fact that we haven't actually played in nearly two years. I know. Uh, we played, the last time we played was in December uh, 2019 in Spain. I remember it very well. <laughs> and uh, so it did, it did surprise me. I felt quite emotional while while we were doing it, but it was great to be back playing, and you know, great to meet up with the lads. We've we've been recording actually, so we have you know been together on occasion in the last eighteen months. But you know, we're a band that tours constantly, and uh, and we haven't been able to do that. So you do miss it if you're used to it. You miss it. You know? Well, it's different, a completely different live. Even um, you know, from rehearsing or doing any studio stuff, it's a uh, it's a completely different atmosphere among everybody. Yeah. Um, I mean, I suppose if you last played in December, you won't have even been aware that that was going to be the last show because we weren't locked down till March, were oh, we? No, no, no absolutely not. I, I think maybe there was just a flicker of interest in the, the COVID situation in China in December 2019. But otherwise, you know, uh, I don't think anybody's got the slightest idea it would affect 
Europe and the UK in the way it had. No, not not at all. The set looked incredible. All of those flowers and the way that you set it all up looked amazing. It, it, it was quite impressive, wasn't it? I would like to claim um, that I had something to do with that. <laughs> but it, it, would be, it would be untrue. So I have to say that that was all down to our management company. And um, I'm, I'm glad that you, you like that because I think they put a lot of thought um, and work into that. And of course, we had a live audience as well. Uh, Abbey Road were very strict that uh, we could only have 30 people, I think it was. So it was um, it was limited to 30 people. But about half of those were fans that had come from the States. They'd come wow. a long, long way to, to see that. And it's, you know, we're it's incredible that people give us that kind of support you know i can say personally i really really appreciate it it's um it's a very special room isn't it studio two it's got a, an aura about it that feels different yeah, absolutely what a history i mean that is the studio that the beatles were in most of the time i'm i'm told they did record in studio three a bit but yes. mostly that's where they were based so so much history and so much atmosphere um, and it certainly does get to you. When we first went to Abbey Road, the other guys in the band outside of Rod hadn't been to Abbey Road before. And so I found myself in the position of like a tour guide, you know, and I was saying, <laughs> you know, and yes, we did this here and someone else did that and all that kind of thing. And then I started to find it was getting to me a bit when I was talking about all these just wonderful things that had happened in Abbey Road. And I thought, you know what? I think I'll let them find out from someone else because this is starting to make me feel a bit emotional, a bit anxious, overexcited. It's, it is an incredible place. It's what I, um, I've only been there once, but I love the fact that they've got um, just gear in the hallways, you know, this really incredible <laughs> historic gear that's just sort of littered about the place. Like they, like it's just, it's just that's where it lives, just in the hallway. <laughs> it's amazing. I noticed that as well. I mean, Obviously, they don't want to sell it, but you you do think what what would that fetch in an, in an auction? You know, especially the pieces that have got history. That's the important thing: is what they've been used, what pro- projects they've been used on, and uh, you know, they would be worth an absolute fortune if they've been used on, you know, Pink Floyd or <laughs> the Beatles or something. something oh, like absolutely. That. Am I right in thinking when you guys went in to do Odyssey and Oracle, you were it was the, directly after the Beatles had it done was, their recording? It was about oh. two days after they finished Sgt Pepper. We were the next band in. Oh, I didn't realise it was even that soon. That's very oh, close. It it's really frustrating because we we missed them. We didn't actually meet them, but it was days after them, and. Um, we were we were based in Studio Three, and they had been in Studio Three, and John Lennon had left his Mellotron in there, and Rod jumped on that. And if you listen to Odyssey and Oracle, it would be a very different album without John Lennon's Mellotron. This is Mellotron <laughs> all, all over it. And also, I was I was really thrilled because I was a big Beatles fan and still am. And they'd left a lot of percussion instruments around on the floor in Studio Three, so we were picking up tambourine that's just been used on a Beatles session wow. or maracas or whatever so yeah it was it was a great time to be there and of course we were using the same engineers as them um Jeff Emmerich and Peter Vince who were wonderful wonderful engineers and and really helped us um you know in, in our project do you remember much about uh, Jeff Emmerich, somebody obviously I, I I haven't been able to speak to him because this podcast started um after he he passed on but do you remember much about working with him uh, particularly? Did you know what was the dynamic like in terms of um, sort of 
engineering and and you guys sort of fulfilling your vision for that that particular album was a bit of a um you guys taking back control almost well i think that was the whole idea of uh, we we been with a very good producer up until then, but he was a bit authoritarian. You know, we were never allowed to go to mixing sessions. So sometimes it was quite disappointing when we, you know, we heard the the tracks going into the mixing session and we they're almost unrecognisable coming out of the mixing session. And so particularly Rod Argent and Chris White, who were the main writers, very much wanted to be in the production seat themselves so that they could hear their songs recorded in a way that they'd always imagined them to sound. And I suppose in a way they were inexperienced producers. It was their first project. So it was great to be with really experienced engineers like Jeff and, and Peter Vince. And I, I think that they played a very big part. Well, Jeff the- has a reputation for, for experimenting himself and pushing boundaries. And I imagine that did really help. You know, he was able to go along with some of the ideas and Absolutely, yeah. And I remember particularly he did record Time of the Season. I'm not sure if he mixed it, but he certainly recorded Time of the Season, which went on to be a huge number one in the States and a huge hit all around the world, everywhere except the UK. And people are quite <laughs> surprised when I say that because people know that song because it's been in lots of films and lots of commercials. But it, it was never, I think it's been released three times as a single and it's oh, wow. never been a, a chart record in the UK and it's been a big hit record all around the world. It's, 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 I, in a way, I'm not happy that time of the season wasn't a hit in the UK, but I quite like the mystery of the music business in that you never know. People, no. will, tell you, people <laughs> will tell you, do this and it will be a hit or this song is a hit song and you know, no one knows, no one knows. I, I'm really curious what happened between sort of the release of Odyssey and Oracle and then uh, you know, one year, which we're going to talk about, hopefully, um, there's, you know, I, I remember reading that you almost left and gave up. Um, so what was, you know, what was the time period between sort of 1968 and 70? Do you remember much about your decision making at that time and how you felt about the industry? I remember that with hindsight, it, it wasn't probably the best decision making that you, you could have made. But, you know, everything's simpler when you look back, isn't it? We actually recorded Odyssey in Oracle in the summer of 67. And um, I think there were, there was only one single released. And you have to remember that at the time, it was the, the single was the all important thing still. It was just about to change. Our albums were going to become really important. But at the time, it was it was singles that was the real priority and we released one single it was care of cell 44 which was the first track on the album and to my ears that's probably the most commercial track on there but it's never been a hit so you know don't go by what i think (laughs) but um, it was released and, and honestly just nothing happened nothing i think um eventually the album did get one or two quite good reviews but generally speaking um (laughs) <laughs> there was a, you know, we we got the CIA to do our publicity on that, and it was kept very very secret. <laughs> um, nothing that was just ignored. I remember Kenny Everett loved the album, who was a fantastic DJ of the time, and Penny Valentine, who wrote reviews for Disc, wrote a great review. Otherwise, it was it was ignored. And it's it's 
Mate, I struggle to believe it. It's crazy, isn't it, that it's such a revered album now? And and that's it's incredible. It Rolling Stone named it as one of the top hundred albums of all time. Wow. But when it came out, it was totally. I I can't I can't emphasise how ignored it was. There isn't a <laughs> word big enough. You know, it must uh, have been such a letdown from you know internally. You'd put all this effort into it, you know, and passion into this project that. That, you know, was... It, it was. It was very disappointing. And we'd come to the end of a three-year period where particularly the non-writers in the band were, were just totally broke. You know, we were broke and we were tired and probably a bit beaten up, you know, from um, just being ignored. I don't remember us getting many bad reviews, but we there were times when we were ignored and this was one of them. And uh, it we had the dreaded meeting where we... We all got together, you know, and it, it, it was it was agreed. It was probably time that we moved on and, and tried new projects. And at the time, it did really seem the right thing to do. Uh, we didn't have a manager. We didn't have an agent. We'd been to see a guy. I think he was an agent and, you know, he wasn't interested. Um, and it, it just seemed that, that there was no interest in the band. And so, yeah, we, we split. Um, and I... I Actually, the three non-writers, Hugh Grandi, our drummer, Paul Atkinson, our guitarist, and myself, we were absolutely broke and we had to take jobs. And um, I know Paul went and worked for a computer firm and I think Hugh sold cars for a while. And, and I just took the first office job. I just got on the phone to employment agencies. You know, I took the first office job I could get. Wow. And I worked in a very busy office in the centre of London. And... I was there for about a year and gradually interest started to uh, happen for the zombies in the States. And, and what actually happened, Al Cooper from Blood, Sweat and Tears had become a staff producer at CBS Records. And on his first day in the office, he'd just got back from a trip to London and he brought back 200 albums. And one album had really stuck out for him. And he took that one album, which was Odyssey and Oracle, into Clive Davis, possibly the most powerful man in the record industry. So it's very brave of him in his first day to go into Clive Davis. And he said, whatever it costs, we have to get this album. CBS has to get this album. And Clive Davis said to him, we already have this album and we were going to pass. We weren't even going to release it in America. And it, because Al Cooper was such a champion of the album, it was released. But even then, there wasn't any immediate success. And the story is that one DJ in Boise, Idaho, would not stop playing Time of the Season. Just played it and played it. And gradually, it, other DJs picked up on it. And no one was promoting it. No one was marketing it. This is how it happened. And it took months for it to spread across the States. And then the sales happened. And eventually in Cashbox, it went to number one. And I, I think in Billboard, it was number two or number three or something like that. So it was a, it was the zombie's biggest hit, definitely. But as I said before, it was never a hit in this country. <laughs> I was working in this busy office and the phone started ringing. And it was very difficult because, uh, because it was so busy. The phone was ringing all the time. But people started calling me and saying, have you thought about getting back into the business? And I hadn't, really. I didn't think there was any interest. I thought it was over. It wasn't, I didn't walk off in a half or anything like that. Oh, of I course, yeah. There was any interest. So and no one had called me up to this point. And uh, one guy in particular was a guy called Mike Hurst, who was a very successful producer at that time. He'd been in the Springfields with Dusty Springfield. And um, he just recorded the early Cat Stevens records, um, 
um, Matthew and Son, going to get me a gun. I love my dog. And, and they, they were wonderful records. And he said he wanted to get involved with me recording again. And I, I just wasn't sure really whether I wanted to. I was really still upset, emotional about the end of The Zombies. It, it hadn't been easy when the band finished. And eventually we agreed that I would go into Olympic Studios in Barnes in the evenings after I'd finished work. So I, I think I used to arrive sometimes in a pinstripe suit from, from the <laughs> office and sing in Olympic Studios. And it was Mike's idea to re-record She's Not There, the first record the Zombies ever recorded. And he came up with a really interesting, great arrangement, and we recorded it. And although I've seen articles where he said I wanted to change my name, I don't remember it that way. I remember he wanted to change my name. I, I don't know why. And originally I was going to be James MacArthur, but right at the last minute, they realized there was an actor in Hawaii Five-O called James MacArthur. Uh -huh. And the last minute they changed it to Neil MacArthur. And I wasn't really involved in all this. So uh, the record, She's Not There, was released by Neil MacArthur. And it was a small hit. It was a top 30 hit. Interesting. And, and I was back in the business. I didn't really have any choice. So I had a hit record. <laughs> so my days of commerce and pinstripe suits were over. I was back in the business and I remained Neil MacArthur for about a year, which was a slightly strange situation. And then I, I was coming home from a party with Chris White, the original bass player in The Zombies. And he just said to me, you know, why don't you forget this Neil MacArthur stuff? Rod Argent and myself have started a production company. Why don't you come and record with us? And I just thought it sounded like a really good idea. And eventually, we did start off in another studio, now I come to think of it, but eventually we ended up in Studio 3 of Abbey Road with Peter Vince Engineering. And it was there were similarities with Odyssey and Oracle, really. So there was Rod Argent, Chris White, myself, and Peter Vince in Studio 3, Abbey Road. And it, it did did sort of feel a very uh, it was it was like the old days really just getting the old team back together and uh, we recorded my first album which was called One Year and from that album there was a hit record called Say You Don't Mind a Den wonderful Denny Lane song and a great string arrangement by Chris Gunning very very unusual and it's that a, was released and, and it was a hit that's that I mean it, I I I was re-listening to to one year, and I was thinking, I I can't believe that you, you, you know, that that may never have been made if circumstances had been different. And it's such a beautiful album, and lyrically heartfelt, and uh, it's a uh, you you can tell that you made it with with sort of friends, or you know, I'm, I'm supposing the years that you were together as the zombies, it, they must have been like brothers to you, and to be that um, open with them, you know, lyrically and. And musically, it's just so emotive. Um, mm. And uh, I I find it really hard to believe that that may never have existed if circumstances were different. It's it's insane. Absolutely. I, I often look back on, certainly on my career, and I'm sure other people do. I'm not saying I'm different. I'm sure other people do as well. And so much of what's happened has been chance. You know, I'd love to tell you there was a master plan. <laughs> Even a master plan for one year, there wasn't. You know, we started off, I think we had, an idea for two songs when we started. But I, I knew Rod and Chris were prolific writers and I was just starting to write myself. So I wasn't over worried about material, but we did. We certainly didn't have a master plan. And after we'd recorded a couple of tracks, 
we were introduced to this wonderful string arranger I was just telling you about, Chris Gunning, and that changed everything. And it sort of seems as though that would have been part of our plan when we went into the studio, but we didn't know Chris Gunning when we started the album. So it, I often think that's true, you know, albums evolve, really. They, they sort of gr grow organically when you're in the studio. You're, songs will, will make their way to you. Players will make their way to you when you're actually recording. You have to make that commitment. I am starting an album. And then things happen. Those things won't happen if you don't make the commitment. If you're just sitting around with the idea of recording an album, <laughs> these things won't happen. At what stage did it grow from two songs and you start to feel, uh, uh, I'm sort of chasing it, was it your subconscious that said, this is the story of a year of my life? Because it feels almost a bit like a concept album, the the way that it's laid out and the, the journey through it. Um, did at what stage did it feel like okay this album has a um has a narrative now i, I don't think till we'd finished to be honest okay um, and one of the things that struck me recording with the zombies we always recorded incredibly quickly <laughs> and it, and and it just struck me as quite bizarre that we'd spent a whole year recording this album and so that was the the key for the for the title but then when i looked at it it was, it's like a diary really of, of what was happening. Perhaps not absolutely accurately day by day, but course, yeah. there is an, an element of truth in that that is a diary of that of 1971. Or it would be 1970 because it was released in 71. <laughs> how, um, so in terms of the string arrangements, how did that work for sessions? Did you have the song? you know, uh, sort of mapped out on an acoustic guitar or something, and then um, you would discuss uh, with Chris Gunning these arrangements and, and and build. Did the string arrangement happen by itself and you sing over the top, or how, how was the practicality of the sessions? Well, particularly with the songs that I wrote that Chris arranged, I would play them on guitar to him, and then he would uh, write the arrangement completely on his own, separately. And I can remember him playing me some of those arrangements on the piano in the early days of this project. And I was absolutely bewildered by what he was playing because there are so many parts going on. Yeah. I, I have no idea. Uh, quite, I mean, Chris is a lovely bloke and fascinating and a wonderful musician, but to some extent, I just had to trust him really uh, because I got no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> and I think with all the songs that, he worked on, um, yeah, we would, well, with Misty Roses, for instance, I'm sure we played in the Tim Hardin version, or maybe, no, we recorded Misty Roses in two complete pieces. We started off, it was one of the first two songs that we recorded before we went to Abbey Road. So it's just guitar and voice. And then we, we loved the song, but we realised it was so short. We've got to do something about it. And it always intrigues me that that, that particular track was recorded in two separate parts in two different studios with two different recording engineers. Um, and hopefully no one can hear the joy. You know, oh, no, I, I'd say, I'd, I wouldn't have guessed that um, no, had you not told me. Yeah. The strings, when it goes into the strings, that was all in Abbey Road. But okay. the first part of the vocal and the guitar was in a, a different studio. I, I can't remember what the studio's called. I mean, I could look it up, but I, off the top of my head, I can't remember. Um, so, yeah, we would just talk to... Chris about tunes and and 
and then he would write the arrangement. He'd come into the studio. Usually he conducted, I think. Uh, he would come in, but not always. And then I, afterwards, I would put my vocal on it. And I, I mentioned that he would come in and conduct usually because on, there's a song on there called um, I Can't Live Without You. It's, uh, um, it's about the third or fourth track on the B-side. And he did the arrangement and I'd sung, it's in D, and I'd sung it to him on my guitar, singing down the octave in D. And then when I got into the studio, I think I got a bit overexcited. Uh, the string players had gone, got a bit overexcited, and I sang it up the octave. <laughs> Chris Cunning wasn't there, so he couldn't say to me, hold on a second, this is a little strange. You're singing it very high. And... Um, I don't think Rod and Chris really knew the song that well, so they couldn't tell me. And it means there's a there's a middle section in this song which really men shouldn't be singing. <laughs> <laughs> it's very very high. Yeah. <laughs> and you think, wow. And uh, you know, I'm going to go to America at the end of November, and I'm going to play. Uh, one year with a wonderful band and a great string quartet. I'm going to play one year from beginning to end in Los Angeles and New York. So that song is going to be quite challenging because, you know, I was 21 or 22 when I did that. And it was, it was tough enough then. <laughs> well, you've, um, I'm, a, you've, I'm a bit older than that now. But you guys have been back together since in 99, is that right? Am I it right was 99. That? Yes. Yeah. So you started playing together since 99. So you've had, you know, you've had 20 years of, of being on the road still. So hopefully hopefully it's still there. <laughs> you, you've still oh, got yeah. it. No, I'm not worried about that, but I haven't sung that song. Oh, well. <laughs> I haven't sung that song since the early 70s. You know? <laughs> but uh, I usually, I'm usually okay on anything I've written, even if it has got, uh, you know, a ridiculously high bid in it. I'm, I'm usually okay on songs I've written. Now, Rod and I, the second incarnation of The Zombies started in 1999, although... At the time, we had no idea that there was would be any interest in the zombies. And we're, we're still remembering 1967 when <laughs> there was no interest. And we started off uh, as Colin Blunson and Rod Argent. We played very few zombie tunes. And we got, a, it's a wonderful surprise, but it was a big surprise, the interest in the zombies around the world as we started touring around the world. And so we started playing more zombie tunes. And, and actually, we were exploring the zombies repertoire and finding these deep cuts that we'd pretty much forgotten ourselves, and we had to relearn them. It's a very strange feeling yeah. when you, you know that you recorded this song, but you can't really remember quite how it goes. So we had to relearn these songs. And then after about, it was about seven years, so it would have been around 2006, we thought, this is crazy, we're playing a zombie set. Let's talk to the other, at this point, two surviving original members, Chris White and Hugh Grundy, uh, about calling this the zombies because for the first time it seems honest to use that name we're, that's what we're doing we're playing a zombie set and they gave us our blessings and and so from about 2006 we we toured as the zombies but it, it took a long time to start using that name again we weren't really sure about it but uh, it's worked out well I I really admire that that every everything you've mentioned that's happened to you in your career has happened in a really natural way and you've not doesn't don't seem to have forced anything and I think that that's um seems to be for the betterment of the music and it makes everything feel correct <laughs> almost and it not you know that's but maybe why people enjoy 
the music so much is it is so honest. I mean, that, I, I meant to said it about one year. That's a really feels like an honest, open album, and uh, you know that this seems to be a, a, a sort of thread running through your career. Well, hopefully so. I really do hope so. But I mean, I know there were times when I did try and push it just a bit. Anyway, you know, you get incredible pressure from A and R departments and from managers to you know the old the old conversation that goes, well, look, uh, let me play. This is what's number one in, you know, in their office. They'll play. This is what's num- number one. You should be doing something like this, which, of course, is ridiculous because if you were to copy that and, uh, you know, take two, two months to write something and record something, then it'll be three months before it's in the shop. It's old. It's all gone, you know, by the... But also, it doesn't work. You know, it doesn't work. And the few times when I've tried to, to push... A particular side. I mean, it's very difficult in the late seventies in this country. No, in America especially, disco was god. And if you didn't, if your records didn't have an element of disco in it, you knew it, they'd never be played. And so there were one or two tracks that were, you know, rather dismal attempts <laughs> on my part of, of um, a little bit of a disco edge, which hopefully people will never find and never play. <laughs> and if they did, I'd deny I had anything to do with it. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> and in this country, um, punk was God. But I've, I've got to be honest, I didn't, I didn't try and join in that because it, really, it was a very youth-orientated thing. And already by then, uh, you know, I was past the punk age, I think. So I, I, didn't, I didn't go there. But, I mean, good luck to anyone who's involved in these movements, of course, but it just wasn't for me. Yes. What was your... Uh, did you have a name when you were recording one year? You know, coming out of, uh, you know, Odyssey and Oracle had picked up a bit of steam and you said you'd gone in and re-recorded She's Not There. What was going in for those sessions? What did you sort of think was going to, or hope was going to come out of it? And and did you have any idea that it was going to be an album quite as special as what did come out of it? Um, Well, no, I mean, you never do when you start. And and I don't think... As I said, you know, I've never had a master plan. I, I, I didn't know what was going to happen. I always work on the premise that you you get the best songs you can and you record them the best you can to the best of your ability, and you hope that if those songs affected you emotionally, they you know they meant something to you, then you hope that it will mean something to people who are listening to it, and that's the only way I know how to record really. Um, and I think to most people, I was probably just quite simply the ex-singer of the zombies. Uh, but of course, it probably meant a little bit in 1971 because we'd had this huge success in America. Um, but as a solo artist, I mean, I was I was just starting out really and I, I didn't know how people would accept the album. And I think there were a couple of singles that were released before Say You Don't Mind. I, I would have never chosen Say You Don't Mind as a single. I love it as a track. Um, but uh, it was the third single and suddenly it started getting played off the air and yeah, it went on and, and it was quite a big hit. So that was wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Did you, were you conscious that it's sort of musically, sort of sonically with the string section and everything of it being a departure? I mean, there are some sort of bouncy songs on there, but were you, were you concerned about how people would receive it as a sort of sonic departure from... Um, you know, she's not there as an example of a you know a, a song that or self you know uh, self forty four as a you know sort of 
kind of a, a poppy, a more poppy hit. I'm trying to not to use too generalized language, but you, you kind of know what I'm getting at. That it's it it's feels I mean, it's very it's very different. I, I wasn't particularly concerned that people would compare it with past zombie records. Mm -hmm. I I think that um, I just judging by what was in the charts at the moment in 1971, yeah. I just didn't think it sounded commercial. But you see. Then you get back to this old argument of what is commercial. And sometimes the same things, you know, whatever's being commercial at the moment, if you do something like it, it can be a hit. But sometimes something that's really different can be a hit as well. And that's what happened in this case. Um, it, it was so different. I mean, it's still different now. It's, it's not like anything else. Not at all. Um, I, I was thinking about that. Sorry to interrupt you, but that is an important point that I was thinking the production of it and the... Uh, so the 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 emotion behind it that I've already mentioned and the clarity of you know your your singing's incredible <laughs> and you you kind of if you release that now i mean obviously you're re, you re it's remastered and coming out again and you just wouldn't bat an eyelid at that being what had you know what had been recorded last year or or you know last week i think it holds up incredibly well well i mean that's incredible it's very encouraging for this re-release and i think also that um, the music business is quite cyclical that, you know, what goes around comes around. And um, so maybe people will think it sort of fits in quite well with what's happening at the moment. I have to be honest and plead complete ignorance of what's happening in the charts. I have no idea. Oh, um, you and me both. <laughs> okay. I feel bad, actually. I feel guilty because I, I you know, I, I don't follow the charts at all. And um, I haven't done done for a quarter of a century <laughs> it's, not, it's not last week no. um, but hopefully you know i just want people to enjoy it you know it doesn't go any further than that really i hope people yeah i hope people get some pleasure out of it and also they they found it's actually chris white the original bass player in the band his sons have been doing a lot of work on chris's writing his repertoire finding old songs demos that have been forgotten and, and just trying to also catalog all he's written a lot of songs and make sure it's all accurate so they were going through lots of his old tapes and they found uh, and, and they're real to real tapes you know and i think they found two or three real to real tapes of my old demos oh wow and and when <laughs> when they uh, they got them transferred so that i could hear them and when i heard them there were some of them I, I didn't remember at all. It's a very weird thing. I knew it was me singing, but I didn't remember these songs. And even now, I don't remember the sessions. I don't remember where we recorded them. Chris White thinks some of them were done in Regent Sound, which was a little studio in Denmark Street. Yes, and the yes. Stones actually recorded their first album in Regent Sound. Um, but I, he thinks we did some of the sessions in there. I seem to remember that those sessions usually the early part of the session would be in the pub. And I think <laughs> a couple of pints before we started, just to so we could all relax. And that might have something to do with why I can't remember them. <laughs> Quite possibly. <laughs> the record company really loved them. I, I hope people, because they, they've been added to the package, so that one year is as it stands, and then there's 14 demos, and either three or four of them went on to be recorded and I think three went on to one year and one went on to the next album, and is more. Uh, but the rest were just unreleased and forgotten. And, and I hope people will listen to them and in, enjoy them um, and, and just realise that it's just, they're just examples of 
the kind of songs I was writing at that time, that they were never taken any further. In some ways, they're not demos. They're, they're kind of tryouts for a song to see if it's worth expanding. And, and at the time, we didn't make them into proper songs. But, but looking back, I, I hope they're of interest to, to people. I think they will. Getting a... I mean, they're definitely of interest to me. Getting a sort of insight into the um, to the back room of the process, if you like, is is fascinating. It's and it's yeah. um, it's quite a brave move on your part to let people into that, really. Well, I, I, I I'd like to say I was involved in these decisions, but it all went it all happened very fast. <laughs> brave it might be, but I was I with trepidation. <laughs> <laughs> I was a little concerned, to be honest, but hopefully people will be kind. And just remember that also these, this was the infancy of my songwriting. I was literally just starting to find a voice as a songwriter. Yeah, yeah. And so some of them might be a bit clumsy. There's a few bits in there that might be a bit clumsy, but, you know, everyone has to start somewhere. Of course. Um, before I'm, I'm conscious of time, so before you go, I'm really keen to to talk obviously this is a, a podcast about recording and I'm interested in the early recording experiences you had with the zombies. If you can remember, um, you know, you had mentioned already that you recorded very fast and, mm. you know, she's not there was a, you know, has, still is, you know, a very recognized song. What, what was the sort of process recording that first album? Um, and how did, you were at Decca Records, if I if I've yes, read it correctly. Yes, we were at in West Hampstead, and I, I'm aware that you know I've told this story quite a few times, but I can only tell you what happened at the recording session. It was uh, we recorded uh, from seven o'clock because in those days it was thought I think it was quite arty to record in the evening and maybe go into the night. So we we started at seven o'clock, and unfortunately the engineer, who was a very good recording engineer but he'd been at a wedding all day and he was blind drunk when we got there. And worse than that, worse than that, he was very aggressive. And I can remember having the headphones on and just starting to sing and he was screaming at me through the headphones. And it just strikes, I mean, to me, this is hilarious. I mean, and um, within a few minutes, taking into account I've been in the business for probably 60 years, yeah. within a few minutes with this guy screaming at me, I knew the music business wasn't for me. I'd already made the decision. <laughs> I'm not enjoying this. Um, I, I don't think the music business is for me. But then we had a bit of luck and he passed out. And we had to carry him out of the control room up two flights of stairs. There was a zombie on each arm and a zombie on each leg. And we put him in a black London taxi and he drove away and I never saw him again. Wow. And the assistant engineer took over and the assistant engineer was called Gus Dudgeon. And of course, Gus went on to be a hugely successful producer, produced all the early Elton John albums, worked with David Bowie, Kiki D, many, many other artists. But that was his first session and he took over because the engineer had been carried out unconscious. <laughs> but oh, Gus it. never forgot that that was his first session. And we never forgot that it was our first session. And we ended up being recorded by Gus Dudgeon. Fantastic. So it really didn't happen. I mean, this guy was a little bit out of control. And, but I think in the end, we probably recorded, I think we recorded three tracks finished, not, not mixed, but, but finished. We did... Uh, Oh no, four. We did four. We did She's Not There, The B-Side, You Make Me Feel Good, Summertime, and It's All Right With Me, which was an early song that Rod had written. Um, so we, in the, even in those days, we were recording fast. We were only in there for the evening, and we had yes. to 
get over this, you know, the, the challenges with the engineer. And we managed to get four tracks done. Yeah, it's it's amazing that it, that it was that fast. Did, did it feel fast to you, or did it just feel you know? Presumably, you were playing live at the time a lot, and it was just sort of recreating what you'd done. Yeah, I, the band played live, yes. and then I I went in and um, sang the vocals at the same time as Chris and Rod doing backing harmonies. Okay, but I don't think there was any dropping in. You know, there were complete performances. Oh um, yeah, so, sorry. I'm, I mean, the, the ba- you must have been playing live outside of the studio as well. Um, and that you were therefore quite tight as a unit. So it was, oh, yes. yeah, yeah, it yeah. Must, you know, there wasn't any. But mind you, you she's not there. It only just been written. Um, it came about by chance. We won a, a big rock and roll competition and that led to a contract with Decca. And we were introduced to a producer called Ken Jones. And he was having a bit of a pep talk with us a couple of weeks before the session. I, I think we'd only signed a singles deal, I think. I can't remember now. But he was saying, you know, guys, you can always write something for this session if you want. And then he moved on to something else. It wasn't, it wasn't a big deal. And I, in my innocence, took absolutely no notice of because I thought songwriters were in a different part of the business to bands. I thought we record songs and songwriters give us the songs. But Rod and Chris went away and they both wrote songs. Rod came back about 48 hours later with uh, She's Not There. He wrote it very quickly. Fantastic. And Chris wrote The B-Side, which is another great song. You make me feel good. And, um, and you know, that, that changed our lives. It changed our lives, definitely. So was there any pre-production of those? Would you, you know, did you get together in a rehearsal studio or were you working it out um, in the recording sessions? Do you remember? No, we, we, did, we weren't working out in the session. We, um, we recorded, I can't, I think we rehearsed in Rod's parents' house. Okay. Or it wasn't, it was Chris's parents' house, but um, we didn't know about um, rehearsal studios in those days, but we recorded around at someone, we rehearsed around at someone's house, anyone we could, <laughs> who would put up with us. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, Rod's parents' next door neighbour was on night, so he would be sleeping during the day. I didn't know this two years later, and we used to rehearse, obviously, next door to him. I, I shouldn't think we were very popular with him because that's when he was sleeping. But um, oh. we were we were quite tight on this song. We we rehearsed a lot, and it was the same with Odyssey and Oracle. Just by the by, um, it was a very very small budget. We only had a thousand pounds, and we were in Abbey Road. It's a very expensive studio, so we rehearsed extensively for Odyssey and Oracle. We knew the songs we were going to do. We knew the keys and the arrangement. We're just looking for a performance, and we recorded that incredibly quickly. Fantastic. I mean, that's a. I mean, that's an incredible insight into. You, you listen to Odyssey and Oracle and I would, uh, you know, you, you've got grandiose pictures of, you know, like almost like Sergeant Peppers of exploration of all this stuff happening. And actually you, you knew what you were doing and you were really efficient. And I, I, I really admire that. Well, we did know what we were doing. And I, I'm, I'm not, um, I'm not trying to look down on the Beatles who are the greatest band ever. Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of the Beatles then. And I, I am now, but, we, you know, we had to. We didn't choose to record like that, but we we just had to, um, and and it was fun. I mean, there is there's something there's something for doing uh, to for recording quickly. There's an energy that comes when you when you know that uh, you've got to get this done. You get it done, and so in some ways it's a disadvantage, but it also in some ways it's an advantage. I I agree with you. <laughs> I absolutely yeah. agree but with when you. When you've got all the time in the world, you take all the time in the world, don't you? When you've got all the options in the world, you've got limit limitless 
digital tracks, you, you just take forever. Well, we didn't have limitless <laughs> tracks. We, we had to record under those circumstances. Um, so just uh, sort of finally, uh, where so you've got a shows in New York and LA, um, and what dates are they? Did you say they're November? Uh, yes, they're in the first week of November. Okay. And, and also the, the uh, re-released uh, one year is coming out in November. And you can pre-order the, the album if you go to my website. It's colinblundstone.net. Um, so, I mean, you know, it, could, it could be exciting times. Let's, let's see how, what people make of one year the second time around. Fantastic. As a, as a very last question, this is something I ask all the guests, and uh, I'm really keen to know what you think, is that, uh, you know, you've had a, a lo- an incredibly long career, with, albeit with breaks. What would, if you were to give a piece of advice either to your younger self or, or listeners embarking on a music career now, what would you suggest has been the key to your sort of longevity? Well, what I would say to my younger self, and, I, and I'd probably say this to someone starting the business, to just remember that you can have a career in the music business. When, when I was making records, most bands had a two or three year career and that was it. And, and it was certainly sort of accepted wisdom that you would have a short career. I th- I've seen uh, the Beatles and the Stones interviewed where they said, you know, well, we're not going to be doing this at 30. Uh, but it, it's changed. You know, you can have a lifetime's career in music. And I think it's a good idea to remember that um, and, and just you know, be aware, try and get your writing going, try and maybe learn a little bit of singing technique, a little bit about, about music, about recording, because you, you're going to be in this business for a long time with a bit of luck. Whereas in those days, it was, there was a, there was, um, it was a wonderful adventure that would probably take two or three years. And then you got back to your real life and a, and a proper job. That's, that was what was thought. And, and it was in our case, and in, and the same for many other bands, it, it was totally different. So I wish I'd realised at an earlier age that this can be a lifetime's career. Fantastic. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me. I've, I've really enjoyed this. And I, I feel like I could, uh, could, you know, just pick your brains for a long time. <laughs> but yeah, I really appreciate it. Okay, cheers. I've really enjoyed it too. Thanks ever so much. There we have it, Colin Blundstone of the Zombies. Isn't he just a lovely, lovely guy? You can you can almost tell from hearing his speaking voice that he's an incredible singer. <laughs> um, so I hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation. Please do go check out One Year. Um, the re-release is coming in November, and if you're listening in the States, he is performing in New York and LA, and uh, that promises to be an incredible show. And as Colin said, you can find details of that at colinblundstone.net. Um, the zombies and all that are also on, on social media, uh, Facebook and Instagram and all that jazz. Um, so that just leaves me to say, if you would like to support this podcast by buying a lovely enamel mug, you can do that at my website. All you need is drums.com. There is a link to the shop there. A huge thank you to Joe Kane for the intro and outro music, to David Henshaw for the artwork he supplies for this podcast, and to Rory Hancock for uploading and editing the podcast. Uh, You guys have a lovely week, and I will be back next week with another guest, because remember, this was just a one-off episode. Um, We'll be back with the regular two-parters next week. 
Uh, have a good one. Goodbye.